When Partisans Endorse Violence, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Some Republican voters supported the January 6th storming of the Capitol, raising fears that the U.S. will continue to escalate violent extremism, moving everyday partisans toward endorsement of violence against their political opponents. On this week's special edition, I talk with Nathan Calmo of Louisiana State University and Liliana Mason of the University of Maryland about their new book project, Radical American Partisanship. They find that partisanship leads a sizable minority of Americans to support violence or wish harm on the other party's leaders and followers, especially after they lose elections. We also draw on Calmo and Mason's prior books, With Ballots and Bullets and Uncivil Agreement. Their research connects polarization to its violent form. Here's our conversation. So January 6th, we saw a, a dark uh, chapter in American politics come to fruition all day on our uh, television screens with the uh, insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, Liliana, what was it like to see uh, your research on violent American extremism uh, come to life? Yeah, it, well, personally, I live in D.C., so it was scary uh, you know, we were watching it on the television and my, had my kids with me. And, um, so it was, you know, it, to see this really happening, to see, you know, real, um, real violence occurring was really frightening. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we had, Nathan and I had been talking and even, you know, posting things on Twitter about how, you know, this is this, uh, sort of position taking by these legislators that pretending that the election was stolen is really dangerous rhetoric and that there's real, support for violence out there and that, you know, the leaders have a role to play in either stoking or, or pacifying that violence. And I just, the, you know, one of my first feelings was just, I was so angry that these, these leaders had the opportunity to tamp this down so many times. And, uh, and they just intentionally did not do that. And this was the, this was this sort of obvious, obvious result. And Nathan, should we have been surprised by either the the form that this took or the time that it took or should it have been seen as kind of an inevitable progression to this? And is, is there anything about what happened that that's changed your thinking? Well, I think uh, Lily's point is a, a good one. Nothing is inevitable if you go back far enough. And there were certainly opportunities for this to be headed off, particularly by Republican leaders. Uh, but the combination of risk factors that we saw going into uh, November and December uh, and into January make the attack, at least in general terms, unsurprising, even though it was shocking to see it play out live on television. Uh, we know that uh, from our research that a sizable number of Americans think that partisan violence is at least a little justified. Um, and especially when they're asked if their party loses the election, they're especially likely to endorse violence in that case. We know that uh, Trump's lies about the election gave them that justification, and his cheerleading made the January 6th event a focal point. Um, so something violent was likely to happen even before we saw the specific online messages by people who ended up as attackers who were coordinating their actions in advance. So Lily, this uh, project uh, combines uh, your, your previous uh, interests um, and your own uh, uh, prior book that, that uh, we've discussed before on civil agreement talks about uh, the importance of overlapping identities and increasing uh, polarization. Uh, is that part of the backstory of how we got uh, to, to where we are? Uh, we, of course, saw a lot of uh, white male conservative uh, Republicans uh, on display at the Capitol insurrection. Yeah. And we also saw a lot of, um, you know, sort of overt white supremacy, uh, you know, signs, Confederate flags, these types of things. Um, you know, in our in our research, we found that, that there is some role of, you know, these these either cross-cutting or aligned identities playing a role in how much people are morally disengaging from the other side. So kind of dehumanizing people on the other side. In particular, um, you know, we find that the, the people who are higher, Republicans who are higher in education and high education for Republicans at this point is a cross-cutting identity tend to be, um, you know, tend to be less dehumanizing of, of Democrats. Um, and, and similar effects we see among, among Democrats where if, you know, if they're evangelical Christians then they're less dehumanizing of Republicans. So, um, there are these, you know, cross-cutting identities do tend to actually improve, uh, or, or heal these, these really dangerous attitudes. 
but we've also seen that the that one of the things that has been a really important cross-cutting identity uh, or or aligned identity is is both both racial resentment and hostile sexism for Republicans who, when they're very very high on racial resentment and hostile sexism, they're much much more morally disengaged from Democrats. But when they're very low on racial resentment or hostile sexism, they actually are sort of the least morally disengaged people in our, that we can find. So not only do identity, cross-cutting identities have a role or aligned, sorted identities have a role, but also sorted racial and gender-based attitudes seem to be having a role in encouraging this type of behavior and, 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 um, and attitudes. And Nathan, the book uh, obviously builds on your uh, recent book uh, with ballots and bullets about uh, civil war partisanship uh, and its uh, role in reconstruction. Uh, what can we learn from from that history for our, our politics today? Uh, are we are we at a point that that should be compared to, to civil war and its aftermath? I think there's echoes, but we're, we're certainly not quite there. Um, there's plenty to worry about. The civil war killed three quarters of a million Americans, and and that's not anywhere close to where we are. But uh, it's true that the Civil War and what came after have important insights for understanding what's happening today. Uh, just a little bit of the historical background, the parties back then were defined by their differences over slavery, but a lot of people forget that the rebellion started with rejection of a presidential election when Southern Democrats refused to accept Lincoln's election as the first Republican president. Uh, in the North, you had Northern Democrats who initially supported the war against their former Southern Democratic allies, but then ultimately turned against it later in the war. And those divides between Republicans in the North and, and Northern Democrats had really important consequences for fighting and winning the war. Even though uh, nobody fought explicitly for their party, ordinary partisans were more likely than Northern Democrats to enlist in the Union Army over the course of the war, and especially at times when the party leaders were most divided over the war, because Partisan leaders who they trusted told them it was their patriotic duty, and they interpreted what was happening through the lens that they were given by their party leaders. Um, likewise, anti-war Democrats were discouraged from enlisting uh, by leaders who told them this was a senseless war and a, a vindictive crusade against the South. Um, and they also said the war would end white supremacy, uh, including in the North, which they wanted to maintain. So I, th I think the first three points that, that come out of all of that are uh, you've got ordinary partisans who can get extraordinarily violent, uh, and they do that in large numbers when encouraged by their leaders for what seems like a noble cause, and that race and other social identities are really important in fueling violence, especially when it's aligned with the parties. I think it's important to recognize uh, the violence in those terms, that it's both racial and partisan, and that that combination um, is serving both social and, and political goals at the same time, and especially in light of the fact that when dominant groups are feeling like their privileged positions are threatened, it provides a major motivation for violence when they can't get what they want through ordinary politics. And that's true then and now and around the world. Uh, I just want to make clear, there's huge moral differences between the Republican cause then and now uh, in on one hand, violence upholding democracy in the Civil War case and uh, undermining it in this case, but the mechanisms leading to violence psychologically and socially are very similar. Um, one other key historical difference uh, as a contrast rather than a similarity is that Civil War violence was so deadly because you had party-controlled governments who were organizing that violence. It was basically industrialized killing in a war between governments and not just small militias and mobs. So I don't think that's uh, a plausible outcome today. Um, Lincoln basically got no votes in the states that rebelled. Uh, I think 27% was the worst that Biden did in any of the states. Um, and it would have to involve Republican governors ordering National Guard troops to fight the U.S. military, which would cause some of the U.S. military to desert and support their partisan state governments. Um, I know I've said a lot already, but I just want to make one more historical point for co comparison. I think this is most important. We're focused on violence historically and in the present, um, but that's not ultimately the main threat. Uh, violence was just a, a mechanism among many to maintain control of government throughout the late 19th century and again in the attack uh, this year. So when they can't win elections legitimately or, or through disenfranchisement even, uh, 
and when they can't secure control through corruption of the courts, um, violence is the, the me- mechanism that is still available. Uh, the rebellion against uh, Lincoln's election and the reconstruction violence after the Civil War wasn't the, the end goal. It was just that mechanism for whites to regain initial political control so they could use government to firmly establish white supremacy and end multiracial democracy after the war. So even though white Southerners lost the war for independence, afterwards they succeeded, they won in using violence and intimidation to get control of government and the legal apparatus, at which point they entirely dismantled democracy and basically reestablished slavery under a different name. So the biggest threat today is that there's many Republican leaders within government who are doing things to undermine government, especially at the state level. And they're far more dangerous to American democracy than any mobs or militias and have done more damage already than anything that violence could accomplish short of a widespread civil war. And they're still preparing to undermine democratic elections further. So we, of course, don't have uh, survey data to compare back uh, all of all the way to, to that uh, era to our own. But the new project, uh, Lily, draws a lot on recent surveys that you have uh, conducted uh, about uh, partisan support uh, for uh, violence and some precursors to it. So um, why don't you walk us through uh, what that evidence looks like and, and what should we take uh, from it and, and what it means to, to have someone say on a survey that they're either endorsing violence, okay with uh, harm to someone else or, or related indicators. Yeah, so the, the, the first two things that we find to be very consistent predictors of pro-violent attitudes um, the first one is relatively obvious, which is trait aggression. So people just reporting, you know, in their daily lives that they have, you know, gotten in fights, they get angry easily, um, they've hit someone before. So just aggressive people tend to be more approving of, of political violence. Uh, but the other c- consistent predictor is a strong partisan identity. So people who identify with their party as a social identity. So what, you know, when they talk about their, their party, they say we rather than they. Those type of partisan identifiers are consistently more likely to say that it's at least a little bit justified to participate in, um, in partisan violence. And those are really our most consistent predictors. The, you know, there, are, there are things that, um, that we can, you know, that, that sometimes are there and sometimes are not there. Uh, in terms of predicting these things, like I said before, right, hostile sexism and hostile racism and uh, racial resentment in the presence of a Republican identity is a strong predictor. Uh, but and, and we also have seen that, you know, the, the strongest partisans are the most responsive to to party party leader rhetoric, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And so so, you know, there are things that, you know, we can kind of we can use to predict violence and we can use to potentially change violent attitudes. Now, the, the issue of expressive, um, expressive responding versus actual violence is, is an important one. Before yep. you get to that, why don't you just describe what these what these outcomes look like a little bit um, in terms of people's uh, people's endorsement oh. of, of violence? Right. So our, our, uh, the questions that we use to assess endorsement of violence are generally four different questions. Um, and the, so the first is, you know, how acceptable is it to threaten leaders of the other party? The second is uh, how, how acceptable is it to uh, threaten and harass a person, a regular partisan from the other party on the Internet in a way that makes them feel frightened? The third is, you know, to what extent is violence justified to achieve political goals, violence by your party? And then the fourth one until recently was, what if your party loses the 2020 election? How much do you think violence would be justified then? So in general, those last two questions are really getting directly at violence. And the first two are more about sort of a violent environment or a th- sort of threatening environment. And, and what, we, what we generally saw was that, uh, you know, we would see... 10 to 15% of people uh, agreeing that it would be justified for, for the people in their party to engage in violence for political ends. But that number often doubled when we said, what if your party lost the 2020 election? Would it be acceptable then? So making people imagine an electoral loss consistently increased their acceptance of violence for political ends. And, and so, you know, one way to interpret what we saw on January 6th is this is the side that lost. Uh, and so we should expect more anger and more, more uh, acceptance of violent behavior from people who, 
you know, we already could have predicted when once they lose, they are they are more accepting of, of political violence. And Nathan, you find that these uh, indicators are actually pretty similar across the, the two uh, political parties. Um, but of course, we are witnessing a big upsurge in, in right wing violence and, and warnings that are uh, more uh, associated uh, with that. So uh, that, that could be just attributable to Trump. It could be something else about the, the long running differences. So uh, I guess, how do you interpret uh, your findings in light of um, the, the violence that we see in the real world? Um, and what signs should we look for um, that there was left violence uh, forthcoming? Yeah, so we generally do see uh, more asymmetries than, or more symmetry than asymmetry uh, between Democrats and Republicans in the range of extreme attitudes that we ask about. And violent attitudes are obviously a risk factor or a precondition for engaging in violent behavior. But there are several important steps from those attitudes to actually taking actions that are clearly important. And that's what produces the asymmetries in action that we see. Um, leaders are the obvious uh, explanation for, for a major difference there in terms of action versus attitudes in uh, fanning those flames or discouraging them. Um, that's the role of leader is, is uh, clear in U.S. history. It's clear around the world and, and it's clear in the post-election violence that we just saw. Um, party leaders are indicating their approval, not just for a general kind of a hostility, but for, for their followers to take action, either uh, implicit or explicit um, uh, approval and endorsement, and they provide opportunities and coordination to act. And, and those are just as important, uh, helping to focus people's attention and their actions in specific directions and not just a diffuse sense of hostility. In terms of left violence, um, the biggest danger for violence from Democrats and aligned groups would be probably a reaction against violence by Republicans or by right-wing groups, uh, particularly if Democrats feel that police and other security forces aren't keeping them safe. Um, obviously, there's a lot of distrust of law enforcement among many Democrats already. Uh, there's a Bright Line Watch survey this fall that found that when partisan violence is contextualized as a response to violence by the other side, then the support for that violence actually triples from the, the baseline level. So um, we repeated this question in our post-election survey as well. You see between like 40 and 50% of partisans say that violence is okay if it's a response to violence by the other party. So that's a real danger of cycling violence. Um, more broadly, we don't think that Democrats are immune to mobilization into violence. We don't think there's anything uh, inherently different about the psychology of Democrats that makes them uh, not susceptible to this. It's just that Democratic leaders haven't radicalized them in the same way and certainly haven't mobilized them into violence in the same way. Um, and Democrats haven't insulated their core supporters from cross pressures of information and social influence in the same ways that Republicans have. So, Lily, I'm not sure you uh, got the full opportunity to um, talk about the expressive responding issue. So why don't we go back to that uh, a little bit? What, um, you know, it do we should we see these uh, say regular Trump supporters who, who showed up um, at, at a rally and then made their way to the Capitol, but maybe were not intending to, to break in, uh, as similar to your survey respondents who are kind of halfway down the, the scale, but not yet in endorsing uh, a violence. Um, you know, how, how, how big of a connection is there between what, what would happen in the real world and what we see on surveys? Um, we've been worried about the idea of uh, expressive responding for a while, and, and a lot of our survey um, experiments were designed to try to figure out, you know, would people be willing to harm other people in their actual behavior? Um, uh, now, <laughs> on January 6th, watching, you know, watching this attack, I, I thought about that problem of expressive responding. Because obviously this is this is far beyond expressive responding. This is an actual violent activity, and and I think what what we've been arguing for most of the most of this time is there are people who are just saying that they approve of violence because it feels good to say that, uh, but that doesn't actually you know not everyone is doing that. And in fact, what we saw in the Capitol attacks was that it doesn't take very many people to create a huge amount of chaos and real danger, not just to you know, lives and property, but to the processes of democracy itself. So 
often, you know, Nathan and I will talk about how, you know, it only takes a couple of people. It only takes a, a few people to, to actually act out these violent attitudes. And I, and I think now we've really seen the, the perfect example of that. Um, and it's possible that there were people that were at that rally, as you said, that were, you know, that, that might not have entirely approved of using violence for political means. But once they saw what was happening, uh, you know, they either, um, they either got carried away and got very excited because they were together in a group and, you know, group psychology works very differently than someone sitting at their computer. But but in general, I think it's important for us to remember that not not everyone who says they approve of violence will engage in violence, but it just doesn't take that many people to create dangerous environments. And Nathan, maybe we should uh, remind uh, people what some of these precursors that you look at are. So these things like schadenfreude, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, um, uh, moral disengagement, dehumanization, these, these kinds of, of indicators, what do they look like and, and how much should we be concerned about them, them alone, even if people are not directly endorsing violence? Yeah, so the, the extreme views that we are seeing go well beyond just support for partisan violence, where, as we said, it tends to be between like 10 and 20 percent. Although when you start to add conditions like losing in the election or, um, or the other side being violent, that number jumps pretty, uh, pretty dramatically. Uh, when we ask about uh, moral disengagement items, these are, uh, the, let me just explain the, the, the concept. The psychologists um, basically see these as rationalizations for violence um, and other kinds of harm against other people. Um, so they include vilification, um, a sense of uh, righteousness for your own group, uh, minimizing the harms that are caused uh, through the action and diffusing blame, those kinds of things. So we asked a number of questions that get at moral disengagement as, again, precursors for um, actually taking action and supporting action that is violent. Uh, one of these items is, do you see the other side not just as wrong in policy, but as a, a, a real threat to the United States and its people? And somewhere around 60% of our partisan respondents um, see the other pe- party not just as wrong, but as a threat to the country. Uh, we asked, do you see them not just as wrong, but as evil? And about 40% say that they see the other side as evil. And we asked, do you see them as lacking the traits to, that are essential to being a human? Basically, are they less than human? And about 20% of American partisans endorse that idea. So um, an important uh, uh, set of trends here that we see is that some of the, the most extreme views have um, lower support. And I guess from a... a, a democracy perspective that's really encouraging. And from a, um, a, a methodological point, if I can jump in the weeds for a second, it's it's encouraging to see that um, partisans are responding in a, a modulated way um, that indicates that they're not just saying all the worst things that they can imagine just because it feels good. They're they're considering the the specifics of what we're asking them and they're saying, yeah, I, I'm that sounds good or no, that goes too far for me. So, Lily, we've all uh, been more uh, engaged in insights from the from the comparative politics uh, literature uh, lately in American politics, and and two that uh, jumped out at at me. One is just whether there is uh, a part of this that's an inevitable response, or we we don't like the word inevitable, but that uh, should be expected as a response uh, to diversification, to secularization, to to liberalizing social trends, um, the to the decline of of white Christian America, as it's been posed in one uh, case. That um, that this is the kind of upsurge that 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 we should expect to to follow from that. Uh, and the other is that it's sort of important whether people see a route to victory through traditional political institutions, um, and that if they don't, if, if this is the, the, the last election, um, or they, they believe that it is, then, then they're more likely to, to go down those routes. So how, how much do those apply to the American case? Yeah, I think that's uh, just a really great, a really great insight. The you know, one of the ways I, that I tend to organize my thinking about the current kind of partisan divide is that it's really centrally about, you know, the traditional social hierarchy in which, you know, white men are at the top and, uh, and they get to have, you know, more, more rights and more protections than, than anyone else. Um, the, and with the Republican Party essentially saying both that the traditional social hierarchy is good 
and that it is no longer present, right? That it has been destroyed. Uh, and the Democratic Party saying that the traditional social hierarchy is not fair, it's not egalitarian, and it still exists, and, and there's still work to be done to dismantle it. And increasingly, questions about this, um, about systemic racism, for instance, are increasingly dividing white Democrats and white Republicans, where uh, white Republicans have basically had the same attitudes about these issues since 2009, whereas white Democrats have become far, far, far more progressive on their, you know, their uh, their belief that that systemic racism exists and is a problem that still needs to be dealt with. So. So really, this is part of this is, I think, a central part of the divide that we're seeing and the and the source of so much of this violence and anger is that we're really fighting the tradition the this battle over the traditional social hierarchy, which is a deeply embedded part of our society. And and it's true that that the the group that has moved the most is white Democrats, right? They have become increasingly progressive, whereas white Republicans have kind of stayed where they were. Uh, but what that means is that that is sort of a threat to white Republicans who feel that this group of people, this group of white people from their own racial group is leaving them behind, is, you know, is turning their backs on them. And, and, and that's the type of debate where there is not very, there's very little place for compromise when, when we're in a debate like that. Uh, because because it's it's becomes very uh, moralized for both for both you know people who want to see social progress and people who don't want to see any more social progress. So you know if if we need to in order to depolarize, for instance, if we need to find a place of compromise between Democrats and Republicans, it's not it's not normatively ideal for, for Democrats to become less um, you know less committed to uh, to egalitarianism and multicultural democracy, for instance. So that makes a very difficult uh, argument that's that's really going on, and it's a very deep argument. And it, I think it does help explain why things are so fraught right now. Um, and then in terms of the you know the idea of of institutional power, that's another huge part of this because re generally Republican voters, due to systemic and institutional um, rules, are uh, overly represented, right? People in small, and sorry, people in rural areas and, rural, and particularly rural states are, uh, are disproportionately represented in the Senate. The Electoral College uh, provides a lot more power to, to uh, these, to Republican, well, mostly rural, but that tends to be correlated with Republican uh, votes. And, uh, and so there, there is this sense that if we make the system more egalitarian, if we have, you know, a system in which you actually need 50% of Americans to vote to get 50% of the seats in the Senate, uh, which currently you need 17% of Americans to get 51 seats in the Senate. You know, if we wanted to create a sort of more egalitarian democracy, that would be a direct threat to Republicans' ability to remain in power because it is these they're sort of old institutional rules that have allowed them to remain in power for as long as they have. Uh, you know, they don't win the popular vote uh, in the pre for the president in the, in the last few elections very often. So, so that does create an incentive, I think, for a lot of Republicans and even Republican legislators and officials to maintain the status quo. Again, you know, really pushing Republicans to keep everything the way it was while Democrats are trying to push the nation forward in a, in a more egalitarian direction, which, you know, is sort of an irreconcilable debate. And I think that's really part of this tension. It's a, it's an odd behavior now for, for Republicans though, given that what you've, uh, given what you've said, I mean, I have my colleagues that study uh, terrorism and election violence say, well, they, they, you, you need them to believe that there's a path to winning to the next election and uh, they can work through, uh, you know, they can work through current channels. But but as you've said, not only is there a path to winning there, there's no uh, there's no uh, loss of, of competitiveness uh, for for the Republican Party at the at the moment. So uh, but on the other hand, if I guess if we <laughs> we would not want to uh, tell people that uh, they're going to have disproportionate uh, power power forever. So I guess how how, how do we uh, is there any way to get people off thinking that this is the last and only election that they they can win uh, w without necessarily saying 
you know, they, they're going to retain the same level of advantages that they have always had. So I'm not actually convinced that the leadership right now wants wants to calm their their voters down, right? It seems actually that there's two things happening. One is that a lot of the leaders are frightened of their own voters. Uh, you know, people in the House, there were a number of apparently representatives in the House who uh, Republicans who who would have voted for impeachment, except that they were afraid for the lives of their families, right? They're actually physically afraid for their lives um, from threats from their own voters. And and the second thing is that the more they rile up these voters and tell them that, you know, if the Democrats win, everything is over, democracy is over. And we see this all the time on online rhetoric um, from people on the far right. This is, you know, this is it. The They're going to destroy our entire country. Uh, the more they rile people up with this, the more they get turnout, right? The more they have people paying attention to the to what's what the leaders are saying, paying you know being engaged, um, and potentially becoming violent, which is just a side effect of them being engaged, right? And so a lot of these a lot of these leaders, I think, are both afraid to tell people to calm down that if, that it's okay right now, you'll have another election, and they're also slightly motivated to tell people to stay angry because without that they don't have the same type of enthusiasm and support. So Nathan on the one hand the insurrectionists at the, the Capitol were kind of a classic example of the story that that you're telling they were uh, partisans motivated uh, by having lost an election uh, but we also and and mixing all of the identities that we've been talking about but there were a, a whole bunch of other things kind of mixed in um, there's been a lot of uh, focus on the QAnon conspiracy theorists, um, uh, for, for example, but there was older uh, militias and every, everything else you can think of that, that uh, coalesced there. Uh, so one way of seeing it is that it, it, it wasn't really partisan. It was this mix of people that were just bought together by Trump himself. Um, is there any hope that uh, the violence will decline now that uh, Trump is gone and that this was a little bit more personalistic and, and less partisan? Or, or was this classic partisanship um, that, that brought all these people together? Well, it wasn't a surprise that the people who did show up and, and behaved in the most extreme way were the ones who were the most extreme within the party coalition. Uh, each of the groups that you mentioned has some idiosyncratic ideas, but that's normal in a broad partisan coalition within a two-party system. And we shouldn't understate their broad agreements uh, that they share with each other and with the, the rest of the party, particularly around maintaining the power of dominant racial and religious groups. Um, all of those groups see both Trump and the Republican Party as good, if not necessarily ideal, vehicles for achieving their goals, um, as do Republican activists and voters more generally. Um, with Trump as an ex-president, that might help reduce violence somewhat, um, although I think the danger remains high. Uh, it might help with reducing violence because presidents are the top party leader, and uh, Trump seems unlikely to maintain his singular control uh, as a focal point of the party now that he isn't president. Um, that at least slight diffusion of leadership might help to reduce some of the coordination, at least, among uh, extremist groups within the Republican coalition. I would say that Trump's biggest threat to the United States was during the transition period, not just because he had control over the security state at that time, but also because he was his party's empowered focal point. And I think that that really mattered. I think the concern now would be less about uh, widespread violent uprising and more about targeted violence against uh, individual leaders, including assassinations. Um, but there's new leaders who are emerging already among uh, Republicans who could serve as a coordinating and focal role for um, driving potential violence and new events, including violent events, could provide focal points that cause violence to spiral, as we were talking about earlier. And overall, I think, the, as Lily has mentioned, the biggest threats remain. You still have Republican leaders, either because they're true believers or because they see strategic advantages or because they're afraid of their own voters who refuse to accept essential aspects of democracy and of, of the 2020 uh, election result, and in many cases are, are continuing to their work to, to undermine that. And so the overall uh, threat environment related to our political context really isn't changing and in some ways is maybe um, getting, getting more concerning. I would also just add to that that um, just because the, the, the uh, insurrectionists were targeting uh, Republicans doesn't mean that there wasn't partisanship 
behind their anger, right? One of the things that Nathan and I have found is that people are very supportive of violence against apostates within the own within their own party. So if if someone within the party kind of betrays the party, um, people support violence against that candidate almost as much as they support violence. Uh, against outgroup candidates or outgroup uh, elected officials. So just because people are targeting, you know, individuals like the vice president within their own party doesn't actually mean that there is no partisan, um, there's no there's no partisanship that's driving it. In fact, it might, partisanship might make that type of violence worse because they see the vice president as betraying the interests of the party. Lily, your book uh, is also looking at some things that might either make these attitudes uh, better or, or worse. Um, so, so what what can we say about what messages uh, matter uh, and how much who says them matter? This is one of the things that I think is one of the more optimistic findings that that uh, that we that we write about in the book, which is that leader messages really, really matter. And it's not just leaders, even regular people on the internet writing things that are anti-violence or sort of, you know, superordinate identity, which means like we're all Americans, right? We're not, we might be in these two different groups, but we're also all within this one group of Americans. Those types of messages do tend to reduce uh, acceptance of violence. And particularly when we see them from leaders in we we tested uh, messages from both Trump and Biden. Uh, Biden's messages worked better than Trump's messages, and we think that's partially because uh, this was not a consistent uh, a consistent narrative coming from Trump and from Biden. The idea of of anti violence and unity has been a consistent message. But when we experimentally had people read uh, anti violent messages from Biden. What we, what we found was that the effect of partisanship, so we know that you know strong partisans tend to be the most approving of violence, that effect actually reversed so that the strongest partisans were now the least approving of violence. Because effectively what that, what's happening is that the strongest partisans are listening to this leader. They are more likely to listen and, and, and uh, listen to their leader and essentially obey uh, because they're so strongly attached to the party. So the, you know, pacifying language from people like Joe Biden really can reverse a lot of these trends among the people who are most at risk of supporting violence. The, you know, the, the issue is if we have consistent, you know, as I think we saw at the January 6th rally, if we have consistent pro-violent mobilization um, and rhetoric, we can have, you know, leaders can have the opposite effect. But, but we do see that there is, there is a real potential for leaders, if they consistently remind people that, you know, it is not acceptable to, to behave in violent ways. We are all Americans and we are, you know, we're, we're together as, as American citizens and patriots. That type of language works and it works among the people who are the most, who are the most willing to accept violence in general. Nathan, how much do online and, and offline social networks uh, play in this, this process? And are, are we, stuck at just rooting for kind of the, the very last uh, step in your uh, process, the, the actual resort to endorsement of violence. Um, that's sort of where social networks are kind of drawing the line. Um, or can we actually go back further in the process and actually reduce uh, people's all the way to reducing people's moral disengagement? Yeah, our experiments are, are optimistic in that regard, too. Um, uh, we tested inflaming messages among ordinary people that were in our experiments that we, we mocked up as, as Twitter posts that were hostile in various ways towards uh, opposing partisans. And we also tested the, the pacifying or unifying kinds of rhetoric as well. And, and we found that maybe thankfully that, that the ordinary people were not as likely to move the dial on um, the inflaming kinds of rhetoric, uh, but they were just as effective as Lily said at, reducing the hostility, not just in terms of violent partisan attitudes, but also these broader attitudes about moral disengagement uh, in relation to the other party. And so it's, uh, this is consistent with um, interpersonal research more generally, that particularly people in our uh, immediate social networks, our families, our friends, maybe our coworkers as well, 
can be really effective at persuading people in politics. And it seems like that includes with extreme attitudes. Um, and so uh, that extends as well into um, other studies that find uh, uh, social influence more generally, uh, for instance, uh, prejudice reduction, or at least the reduction of um, racist statements on social media when confronted by somebody from, from the in-group. So uh, broadly speaking, our results show that it's, uh, uh, these social media interactions can, can play an important role, uh, even when they're coming from strangers in reducing some of the most extreme forms of partisan hostility. And I, how, do you, how well do you see that mapping onto what's actually happening with the, the social networks in, in the real world? Uh, on, the, on the one hand, we had deplatforming uh, be successful to some extent after Charlottesville. On the other hand, it just reorganized in, in other uh, forums and, and through, other, through other groups. Um, where are they drawing the line compared to, to what you find? Well, the social media has certainly gotten more uh, proactive in removing uh, content that could potentially lead to violence um, in just the last um, several weeks. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, Charlottesville uh, earlier. Um, they've, they've gone much further recently. And of course, that is well within their rights. They're private companies who can control the rules of uh, who and how participates on, on their, their forums. I think it's uh, based on what we have seen from uh, uh, our research and, and what we've seen other people present in their studies. Whatever you feel is the trade-off for, for taking people off, it certainly has a, a benefit of reducing uh, the potential for inflammatory statements with a, a broad audience, particularly when it involves taking um, the president off of Twitter and Facebook, um, that I think is a uh, enormously important, far far more so than the the relatively limited reach of of ordinary people, even when aggregated in large numbers. So, um, in in that aspect, I, I I won't give you a definitive normative statement about whether it's ultimately the best course of action, but it certainly has positive uh, benefits, and I'll let other people decide what the what the the costs of that are. But it's true that that when you there's sort of a whack a mole aspect to it to a certain extent that that you know uh, Twitter and Facebook cut people out, and other uh, other social media uh, websites try to take up the, the the difference there. But I think they're never able. It, it's true that that those ideas don't go away. But the ability to communicate those ideas and to coordinate, um, I think, is effectively reduced uh, because those those other platforms, those other venues are not compensating fully for what is uh, lost in terms of the, the anti-democratic and, and, and other sorts of problematic rhetoric that is being taken off of social media. Lily, you also find that uh, some of the correlates of, of endorsement of, of violence are uh, maybe more ingrained, um, having to do with personality or, or trait aggression. Um, does, does that mean that it's going to be harder uh, for uh, these attitudes to, to change from, from any messages? Um, and does it, does it matter uh, if the, the parties increasingly sort um, in part based on uh, these differences in personality? Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not so worried about that, uh, that effect, because we should, you know, we've seen, presumably, trade aggression is relatively, you know, equally distributed across the electorate across time, right? And so the way that I think about it is more like, um, trade aggression is, is like the tinder, and, and the political environment and political rhetoric is the is the spark that's really required to turn that aggression into approval of violence um, and and moral disengagement and these types of attitudes. So, um, and we don't see average differences on trade aggression across the parties. So Democrats and Republicans are relatively similar in terms of their you know average levels of trade aggression. So they're not actually sorting on that particular personality trait. We do know that Democrats and Republicans, you know, are are different, and on other personality traits like you know, sort of open versus closed, um, you know, worldview type of type of uh, personality traits. But we don't have evidence that those types of personality traits are are correlated with aggressiveness or with with um, approval of violence. So, uh, so for now, <laughs> for now, I'm I'm not as worried about it because I think that. It's it's the type of thing that doesn't it doesn't you know light on fire on its own and so the 
the thing that we have control over is the political environment and how much the political environment is um, really activating the connection between aggression and violence and moral disengagement and these types of these types of really harmful outcomes. Nathan, we were all hoping that uh, t- uh, 2020 was a sort of a year into itself uh, with uh, uh, COVID and uh, election year, uh, and we might be able to turn the page. Uh, obviously, that hasn't been the case so far in, in 2021. Some of your own research uh, shows that election year effects might not be uh, that, that big. Um, does that uh, pretend... Uh, more of this ahead is—is is there anything about um, the, the the last year that should encourage us uh, that that uh, maybe once we get into a new environment, things will change? Yeah, so we see some small shifts in uh, violent attitudes over the course of our several years of surveys that seem to correspond with uh, events or um, uh, changes in the, the the partisan media environment, but we think that this. Sort of general level of of animosity isn't particularly unusual, at least in the 21st century. Um, we we don't have surveys that cover that whole period, but it seems more like there's an an, an underlying level of support for partisan aggression and violence, um, and then how that manifests is um, uh, is a, a function of that broader environment, how it goes from attitudes to actions. So the key is still what leaders do with those uh, latent violent views and whether they encourage extremism and violence or try to stop it. And uh, it's been asymmetric. Uh, We've seen uh, Republican leaders, including lots of media figures who have been encouraging that kind of extremism. And so the dampening, uh, if there is a dampening, uh, was going to need to start with those leaders. And it's not clear that they have incentives to do that for a variety of reasons that that we've mentioned already. And even if there is a sharp leadership change, I suspect that many people will remain radicalized by what they've already been told and, and that sort of um, latent um, hostility to the point of aggression against their political opponents. Um, I would say that that uh, there's some uh, encouragement uh, from 2020, I guess, that it's not much of a glass half full, but maybe a glass 5% or 10% full, <laughs> that uh, we didn't see a total collapse of the, of the system of American elections. Uh, it was put under huge pressure and in a few key spots, sometimes in the court, sometimes at, among state administrators, Republicans in those positions didn't bend and break to the pressure that they were put under by other Republican leaders and by their voters. The problem going forward that makes this really half empty is that those people are now in the process of being replaced by Republican leaders and voters who are furious with them not going along with the attempt to overthrow the election. And so um, this is, uh, I think we're still in in uh, five alarm crisis mode as a result of that. Lily, what should we uh, be looking for in the in the year ahead or in the research ahead? Um, and maybe talk a little bit about the, the methodological point of sort of what, what is the role of survey research um, in understanding this uh, relative to say, uh, listeners uh, heard last week, you know, ta- discussions of the actual uh, armed groups um, that, that might have been leading uh, the violence or uh, elite level investigations of relationships between politicians and, and those those folks. Where do you see survey research um, helping and, and fitting into to the broader uh, scholarly agenda? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that we're really, I think that uh, lucky is not the right word, but um, but that allows us to to understand these attitudes better is that we've been asking the same questions repeatedly more than a, on more than a dozen surveys since 2017. And so, um, so to some degree, because we have such a rich amount of data, we can actually see things like trends and election effects, and you know, um, you know, the effects of individual events that are you know that are occurring, um, and and so. Sort of longitudinally, um, it's important, I think, to understand how prevalent these attitudes are, and uh, and whether or not this is a volatile type of attitude, which it really doesn't seem to be. It doesn't really seem to be very volatile at all. But without this survey data, we wouldn't be able to say that, right? We would just be making guesses. And we also, you know, over time have seen that you know we have this consistent level of ten to twenty percent of Americans who are generally 
open to to partisan violence and political violence. So, um, you know, the survey research itself, I do think, provides you know some insight into what's going on in partisans' minds. We're limited because we, you know, we're not going out and surveying militia members. Um, you know, we don't have very many people in our samples that report ever having committed political violence, right, or ever having done, you know, something, um, something violent on behalf of politics. And I think in our last survey out of a thousand people, it was 17 people that reported ever having done that. So, you know, we're not actually surveying the, the militia people that are, that are doing this violence, but, but we do get a sense from, you know, what does the rest of the country think about this and how much support is there and how do we change these attitudes, what types of things can change these attitudes by, you know, using survey experiments and, and trying to think creatively about ways to measure things. So I think that's been really helpful, at least for us, uh, particularly in, in writing the book to have this sort of longer sense of, of what is the, the scope of this and what types of people are, are, um, are more likely to participate in, in this type of, uh, behavior and attitudes. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, one of the challenges that we've found is that it's it's very difficult to study partisan violence in an era in which partisan violence is still occurring. Uh, and it's, you know, one of the things that we've had to do is just sort of say, all right, we're cutting off our data analysis and just finishing this book right now because we can't, you know, we can't continue to bring in new examples as dark as that is. Uh, that, you know, at this point, it is sort of a difficult thing in American politics to study partisan violence, because it is this changing and evolving uh, thing, we know the underlying attitudes. And so we can do research about that. The actual amount of, uh, the actual amount of, of violence and the violent, um, the violent uh, incidents will, you know, hopefully we can explain in, in with future data. But so far, we, we're just really interested in kind of the, the ways that Americans are thinking about this. I would just add to that, that um, we, we conceptualize these broader attitude, public attitudes about partisan violence as um, not just a risk factor for in, the few individuals who are going to get uh, mobilized into violent acts, but also as a broader uh, hostile partisan environment of people who aren't going to take the actions themselves, but who are talking to friends and family who might uh, carry those actions out. So um, for every one person who is attacking the Capitol, you have many more people back in their families, their friend groups, their communities, who probably were encouraging them and saying, yeah, you're, you're right. I hope that you go to Washington um, and, uh, and maybe even approving of, of the, the attack itself after, after the fact. So um, this is not just about what the individuals in our surveys are going to carry out on their own, but also the kind of encouragement and the, the atmosphere the, of partisan hostility and even legitimation of violence that they uh, provide that will help to provoke and uh, enable the people who do decide that they're going to take action. Well, there's a lot more to learn. And thank you to Nathan Calmo and Liliana Mason for joining me. Uh, please check out Radical American Partisanship. We'll be uh, waiting uh, anxiously for it. And then join us again next time on The Science of Politics. 